This is Marshall Weiss, editor and publisher of the Dayton Jewish Observer, and I'm happy to be with you this week for the Jewish News Hour. This week we'll start out reading from the Times of Israel. The first article from the Times of Israel, Did Maimonides Ignite the Cannabis Craze? Book Probes Roles of Jews in Medicine. New Book Chronicles the Remedies Prescribed by the First Jewish Doctors and their Levantine counterparts all the way through to today's cutting-edge innovations by Rich Tenorio. If you think medical marijuana is a contemporary craze, here's a surprise. No less a sage than physician Rabbi Moses Ben Maimon prescribed plant-based drugs with psychoactive effects in Cairo during the Middle Ages. To treat melancholy patients, as Ben Maimon is known, Maimonides, he chose from 100 separate drugs, some with sedative effects, several such as basil, grapes, and pepper, are familiar from the garden or supermarket. One unusual animal-based product topped these on the rabbi's list. Castorium, a liquid secreted by beavers. We may never look at Maimonides the same way thanks to a new anthology in which he appears in several chapters, Medicine from Biblical Canaan to Modern Israel, co-edited by Dr. Kenneth Collins and Stuart Stanton. Similarly, this groundbreaking book gives readers a chance to reappraise the role of medicine itself in the land that now forms the state of Israel and some of its surroundings. We covered everything from the Bible to modern times, Collins said in his joint Zoom interview between the editors of the Times of Israel, ahead of the in-person July 27th book launch in Jerusalem. One of the contributors, Professor Markham Geller of the Department of Hebrew and Jewish Studies at University College London, wrote a chapter on Babylonian medicine incorporating his knowledge of cuneiform. That's not an easy chapter to write, a really profound chapter on the early stirrings of medicine that ties in with the questions from the Talmud, Collins said. Health seems intertwined with Judaism. Think chicken soup or the Mishaberach prayer read aloud in synagogue on Shabbat and holidays. But medicine also plays an important role in other religions. The anthology examines the long Islamic era from the 8th to the 18th centuries CE, including the contributions of physicians such as Ibn Sina, Avicenna, and Ibn Rushd, Averos, Maimonides, or Musa Ibn Mayom in Arabic, served as the personal physician to the Muslim Sultan of Egypt, Al-Afdal. The book covers, man, uh, covers traditional Arab and Jewish medicine as well as medicine under the British Mandate and in the decades after Israeli independence, including how Israel solved the 1950s polio epidemic through a vaccination drive not unlike the country's current approach to the coronavirus pandemic. In the 1950s, with children in Israel endangered by polio, Dr. Natan Goldblum traveled to the United States to learn how fellow Jewish medical professional Dr. Jonas Salk made his groundbreaking vaccine. Goldblum returned home to Israel to help Israel become just the third country to produce the vaccine domestically, following the United States and Denmark, leading to a decrease in infections. Nava Blum a senior lecturer at the Max Stern Academic College of Emek Yezreel has written about Goldblum multiple times. Most recently for the anthology in a chapter on rehabilitative medicine, 
that she co-authored with Dr. Aviori of the Department of Rehabilitative Medicine at Tel Aviv University. It was really fun, kind of an adventure to learn all about it. Goldblum's role, his research, Bloom told the Times of Israel. In Israel, she said, no one knows about it. No one. I'm sure his name is not familiar here at all. With a laugh, she added, maybe in the U.S. he is known better than here. The ongoing coronavirus pandemic does get mentioned in the book, and there is a sadly prescient chapter about Israeli contributions to emergency medicine, a topic of recent headlines following the collapse of the Surfside Condominium in Miami. The project originated in a course in the history of Judaism that Stanton attended at UCL in 2017. The syllabus included the German Templar sect that began settling in then Ottoman Palestine in the late 19th century, which piqued Stanton's attention. They brought with them farmers, architects, economists, agriculturalists, doctors in medicine, said Stanton, a widely published expert in urogynecology. It struck me as an interesting idea, medicine in Israel, something that could be written about. My wife is a great inspiration. She said, it's a good idea, get on with it. Stanton discussed the idea with Ori, who introduced him to Collins, a native of Scotland who emigrated to Israel. Collins is the co-editor of the Israeli scientific history journal Korot and the former editor of Vesalius, the journal of the International Society for the History of Medicine. As such, he brought valuable contacts, including his co-editor at Korot, Samuel Kotek, who wrote the chapter on Biblical and Talmudic Medicine and Science. Judy Siegel Itzkovich, the former longtime health correspondent for the Jerusalem Post, co-wrote a chapter on modern Israeli medicine with Collins and Stanton. Stanton praised Siegel Itzkovich's contributions in the chapter, which showed us and everybody else what Israel has given the world. But the book covers a lot of history before the establishment of modern-day Israel. There is a chapter on classical Islamic medicine by Araf Abu Rabia, an anthropology professor at Ben-Gurion University of the Negev, and a chapter on Ottoman medicine by Professor Miriam Sheffer Mosenson of the Department of Middle Eastern and African History at TAU. By the late 19th century, the Ottoman Empire had governed, that had governed Palestine for centuries was known as the Sick Man of Europe. Around that time, Jewish philanthropists from the Rothschilds to Sir Moses Montefiore competed alongside European powers to build hospitals in Ottoman Palestine. For many of the Jewish backers, building hospitals was intertwined with their efforts to establish a Jewish state. To that end, in the early 20th century, Henrietta Zold founded Hadassah, which continues to exist not only through its organization, but the Jerusalem hospital campuses it helped establish. The Zionist movement really wanted to create a new Jew, a healthy Jew, working in the field, not living in the crowded ghettos of Eastern Europe, Collins said. One of the things they wanted to do was make sure the population would be healthy. This continued during the British Mandate as chronicled in a chapter Collins wrote. As over the centuries, different peoples fought over the Holy Land, including Babylonians and Israelites, Muslims and Crusaders, Ottomans and British, Israelis and Arabs, conflicts became an unfortunate reason for many medical innovations. A chapter on military medicine reflects this, written by a former chief surgeon general of the Israel Defense Forces, Eran Dolev. There's an absolutely amazing amount of innovations from the military, Collins said, for getting wounded soldiers very quickly from battlefields to hospitals. Innovations came very, very quickly. 
Although the book contains a great deal of history, there is only passing mention of the medical accomplishments of ancient Egypt and no mention of Jesus, the famed healer of the New Testament and Christianity. Although it brings up the mandate error Jesus Hilfa Asylum for Leprosy in Jerusalem. Of Egypt, Collins said, the movement of health conditions flowed in both directions. Egypt was much more populous and prosperous. People relied on Egypt more than Egypt would have done in the opposite direction. He likened the biblical esteem for Jesus as a healer to that of Rabbi Aryeh Levin during the British Mandate period and Israel's early years. People would go to him for a blessing. He would say to people, I'll give you a blessing, go to the doctor. It was a model of good religious leadership. The narrative refrains from covering the contemporary Israeli-Palestinian conflict. I'm a medical historian, not a commentator on current issues, Collins said, adding, it isn't a political tract. He noted that there are chapters mentioning Israeli Arabs, including one on comparative health and disease among Jewish and Arab populations in Israel. The chapter on emergency medicine notes that the Morgan David Adome has aided the Palestinian Red Crescent. Asked about the future trends within Israel, Collins invoked Israel's national airline El Al, saying onward and upward. The country really has developed a reputation for innovation, for startups, for marketing, know-how to make developments, build on the research. Next from the Times of Israel, Israel becomes first country and world to give COVID boosters to over 50s by Times of Israel staff. Israel began offering a third coronavirus vaccine dose to those over the age of 50 on Friday after Health Ministry Director General Nachman Ash accepted the recommendation of a government advisory panel of health experts. Medical staff and those with underlying illness, as well as prisoners and wardens, will also be eligible for the booster. Last month, Israel became the first country in the world to begin administering booster shots to those over 60, and it will once again be a pioneer in the move to begin giving the third vaccine dose to an even younger age group. As of Friday morning, 775,703 people in Israel have received the booster. Within the ministry, with the ministry announcement, health maintenance organizations began offering appointments for the booster shot to those they ensure who fit the new criteria. According to the Walla News site, the Maccabee Health Fund said 14,000 appointments were made on Friday by the newly eligible, with 2,000 set to be vaccinated that day, and thousands more expected to book over the weekend. Klalit said that 13,000 people booked appointments, with 5,000 vaccinated on Friday, while 5,000 members of the Leomit Fund reserved their slots, with 2,000 set to get the shot over the weekend. Additionally, 3,000 members of Muhedet also booked themselves in for the booster. Transportation Minister Marav McKelly and Health Minister Nitsan Horowitz both went within hours of the announcement to receive the third dose. I really hope that as many people as possible my age 50 and older will be vaccinated with the third dose, Horowitz said. Now is a critical time. This is the most effective tool we have to stop the Delta variant. We are in a very big outbreak, and this is a step that everybody can take. The World Health Organization has called for a moratorium on booster shots until at least the end of September in order to address inequalities in global dose distribution. But Prime Minister Naftali Bennett has said Israel is doing the world a great service by administering the third doses and sharing their results. 
At Thursday's cabinet meeting, some on the government panel advocated expanding the age range to those over 40, according to Channel 12 News. The network said Bennett had been putting significant pressure on health officials, cabinet members, and even members of the advisory panel to authorize the shot for over 40s. Not everyone in the cabinet was on board with lowering the age to 40. Justice Minister Gideon Saar argued that the government should start by lowering eligibility for the third dose to those over 50 and only then gradually lowering it further in order to exercise caution, Khan News reported. Additionally, on Thursday, Bennett spoke with Pfizer CEO Albert Bula and urged him to speed up regulatory approval of the pharmaceutical giant's COVID-19 vaccine for those under the age of 12. Borla told Bennett he views the issue as one of, the great impo- of great importance and will work to the best of his ability to speed up the process, according to the Prime Minister's office. Israel's widened vaccination campaign came a day after the Food and Drug Administration gave authorization for Americans with weakened immune systems to receive a booster dose. The decision to open up booster shots to those over age 50 in Israel came as health ministry data showed no signs of the virus outbreak slowing. According to the latest figures, Friday morning, 462 people are in serious condition from COVID-19. Health ministry data showed that among unvaccinated Israelis aged 60 plus, there are 120.9 people per 100,000 in serious condition. Among the vaccinated, the figure is 19.1 and the partially vaccinated figure was 45.3. There were 6,083 people diagnosed with COVID-19 on Thursday with a further 1,431 since midnight. There were 44,188 active coronavirus cases in Israel, with 758 hospitalized patients in total. With seven overnight fatalities, the death toll rose to 6,611. Israel to permit entry of Gaza merchants for first time in 18 months by Emmanuel Fabian. Israel will allow the entry of merchants and businessmen from the Gaza Strip through the Eretz crossing for the first time in some 18 months military announced Friday. The permits for 1,350 Palestinians comes after several days of quiet along the border. Starting Sunday, 1,000 Palestinian merchants and 350 businessmen, provided they are vaccinated or recovered from COVID-19, will be permitted to enter Israel. After the outbreak of the virus, the pedestrian border crossing between Gaza and Israel was closed down, preventing the traders from continuing their operations, causing a significant impact to Gaza's already faltering economy. Many Palestinian merchants regularly traveled from Gaza to the West Bank by traversing Israel before COVID-19 hit the region. Palestinian Authority Health Minister Maya Al-Kaila on Thursday said some 100,000 COVID-19 vaccine doses were to be transferred from the West Bank to Gaza. So far, 11.2% of the Palestinian population in both regions have been fully vaccinated, according to Reuters. The military tied the move to the relative quiet in the region after a week had passed since balloons carrying incendiary devices launched from the coastal enclave sparked a number of fires in southern Israel. In addition, Israel will allow further imports and exports through the Kerem Shalom crossing. Until now, Israel has significantly limited the entrance of goods into the enclave following 
May's 11-day conflict, saying it would only expand the type of products allowed into Gaza if the Hamas terror group, which rules the Strip, releases two Israeli civilians held in captivity along with the remains of two soldiers. But starting Sunday, the import of transportation and communications equipment will be permitted, as well as materials for humanitarian infrastructure in Gaza, such as sewage and water, the military's coordinator of government activities in the territory said. Kogat said the moves were conditioned on continuing security stability in the region. Hamas has warned of a return to fighting should Israel seek to again tighten restrictions on the blockaded strip. Israel in recent months has frequently imposed and then lifted restrictions, including limited, uh, limiting the Strip's fishing zone following attacks on the border. On Wednesday, a drone belonging to the Hamas terror group was downed after a crossing into Israeli airspace, the military said. Prime Minister Naftali Bennett has repeatedly said that he will respond to attacks with force. Israel is interested in calm and has no interest in harming Gaza residents, but violence will be met with a strong response, Bennett told the cabinet following strikes in July in response to arson balloon launches. Israel has in the past used fishing zone restrictions as a punitive measure against Gaza following attacks or border riots. Critics say the policy is a form of collective punishment borne mostly by people unconnected to the border tensions. Israel and Egypt impose tight restrictions on Gaza, which say they are necessary to prevent a greater threat from the Strip's Hamas rulers. The terror group took over Gaza in a 2007 coup against the Palestinian Authority. And now we'll go over to JTA, Jewish Telegraphic Agency. Researchers unveiled massive study on Jews of color Boosting Fight for Racial Justice with Hard Data by Asaf Shalev. For the past few years, Jews of color in the United States have been counted and recounted. They've been argued over and used as props in ideological battles. Now their own voices have emerged as hard data with the release Thursday of the most comprehensive survey of Jews of color ever carried out. The movement fighting racism within the Jewish community is heralding the study as a watershed moment. Responses from more than 1,100 people in the study reveal a deep engagement with Jewish identity that has often come with experiences of discrimination in communal settings. In some cases, Jews of color said they are ignored. In others, they are casually interrogated about their race and ethnicity. Respondents said white Jews will sometimes presume a need to educate them about Jewish rituals or assume they are present in synagogues or schools as nannies and security guards rather than community members. Some 80% of respondents said they have experienced discrimination in Jewish settings. Titled Beyond Account, the study out of Stanford University, uh, University corroborates with data and the anecdotes of racism in the Jewish community that have been widespread for years. The study's sponsor and research team hope the findings will jolt Jewish institutions into funding initiatives for and by Jews of color and changing the composition of decision-making bodies to reflect Jewish diversity. This study validates the experiences of Jews of color and it also takes away a bit of the illusion that Jewish community organizations are doing enough to respond to racism and racial injustice said Alana Kaufman, executive director of the Jews of Color Initiative, which commissioned and funded the study.
Kaufman also shared her reaction to the study in an essay. Its 1,118 participants were found through an online survey that started with a series of screening questions to ensure that only those identifying as Jews of color were included. The study was not designed to be a statistical representation of all Jews of color, but as an in-depth sampling of the views. Interviews with 61 of the participants provided additional texture and nuance. In a finding that baffled researchers, two-thirds of respondents were women. Nearly half of the participants identified with one or more racial categories, while two-thirds said they were biracial, mixed, or multiracial. One in five were black or African-American, about a tenth were Hispanic or Latino, and a tenth were Asian. Some 7% identified as North African or Middle Eastern, and a small percentage identified with other racial or ethnic groups. Two-thirds of the respondents were raised Jewish, and a familiar, a similar percentage have at least one Jewish parent. About 40% said they converted to Judaism. The researchers behind the study noted the diversity of both backgrounds and views among the participants. Jews of color are anything but monolithic, but there are common prevalent trends about the places and moments when they are not fully embraced by the community or made to only bring a part of themselves to a program or congregation, said Dahlia Peretz, a member of the research team who works as an equity strategist for Microsoft. According to her biographical description, Peretz is the daughter of an immigrant father from the Philippines and a refugee mother who is a Sephardic Jew from Egypt. One Native American interviewee quoted in the report had moved to a new area and sought out community at a local synagogue. What the woman encountered were intrusive questions about her identity. At times, I've had to compartmentalize sides of myself because it's just so mentally exhausting facing the what are you questions, she said. A black man who is active in the Jewish community told researchers about a similar experience of being scrutinized over his perceived differences. I went to Shabbat services recently, and a woman came up to me and said without introducing herself, Shabbat Shalom. So are you here for a religion class? Did you convert? He recalled. One set of findings that researchers said should galvanize Jewish leaders to specific actions has to do with Jews of color seeking community with one another. Nearly 40% of participants said they had no close friends who were also Jews of color, and half said talking to other Jews of color about their experiences was very important. Jews of color can have a sense of belonging among white Jews, the survey said, but only about half said they have felt they belong. Parrott said these findings demand tangible investments in community initiatives for Jews of color. Defining exactly what the term Jew of color means is a challenge that the researchers and the wider Jewish racial justice movement have grappled with for years. Calling it an imperfect but useful umbrella term, the study said those who identify as Jews of color for a variety of reasons. Some were referring to belonging to a racial group as is common in the United States. Others used the term to capture their national, geogra or national, geographic, or ethnic heritage, as in the case of certain Iranian, Ethiopian, or Sephardic Jews. The ambiguity of the term arose previously in debates over the total number of Jews of color in the U.S. Estimates of the community range from 6% to 15%, depending on the study and definition. A 2019 report from the Jews of Color Initiative argued that the community has been chronically undercounted because of poor study designs. 
The recent Jewish population report from the Pew Research Center did not attempt to answer the question, but it did conclude that 92% of Jews identify as white. As the title, Beyond the Count, suggests, the new study's authors want to turn the focus away from past debates and move toward a deeper understanding of Jewish diversity. Asked how they express their Jewishness, the participants offered five main responses. Three out of four said that working for justice and equality was very important to their Jewish identity. About two-thirds selected passing on their Judaism, honoring ancestors, remembering the Holocaust, and celebrating holidays as very important expressions of Jewishness. The quotes from interviewees enlivened the number and pointed to the wide-ranging ways in which Jews of color conceive of their identity. One woman, who identified as white, black, and native, spoke about the significance of being outdoors and observing birds or the rustling of leaves. Nature grounds me that there is a creator responsible for all of this, she said. An Indian American talked about the challenge of keeping kosher in the South, while an Asian American said they had recently brought people together for a Bollywood-themed Shabbat ritual. With every person I talked to, their story was so unique and interesting, said Gage Gorski, one of the researchers. Each time I said, wow, yeah, another way to be Jewish that I hadn't even thought of. Amid debates over vaccines and masks, Jewish day schools buckle down for a third year of COVID by Ben Sales. What the school year, when the school year ended two months ago, Rabbi Bini Krauss allowed himself to breathe a sigh of relief. His modern Orthodox day school, Sar Academy, had been perhaps the first Jewish school in the country to close due to COVID when the virus hit its New York City neighborhood in early March 2020. The school rapidly pivoted to remote learning, and last year with students masked, distanced, and doing as much as possible, it stayed open in person all year. Right before the summer began, Krauss began to feel like the school just may have weathered the pandemic successfully. Older students and teachers were being vaccinated, and positivity rates were cratering. We felt like, wow, we're seeing the light at the end of the tunnel, he said. We knew that it wasn't quite fully mission accomplished, but we certainly felt good and knew we were going into a positive summer and to a better place. Now he feels differently. As schools across the country welcome back students, the spread of the Delta variant and rising case numbers have meant that instead of celebrating return to normal, Jewish schools along with others have returned to debates about masks and vaccines that feel like they're only, they've only escalated a year and a half into the pandemic. We feel like it's hard to believe that we're convening our medical communities again and that we're making decisions again, again about masking. Very difficult decisions about vaccine mandates, said Krauss, SAR's principal. It's certainly on one hand a little deflating. On the other hand, I think we all feel like we're a lot better equipped than we were a year ago. We know a lot about what we potentially need to do if we need to do it. Schools are reopening against the backdrop of state and national debates over whether students need to mask and whether teachers should be forced to vaccinate, as well as concerns about the Delta variant's increased transmissibility. Public school districts in Texas and Florida are imposing mask mandates on their students, defying bans on mask requirements issued by the governors of those two states. In Texas, the ban on mask requirements has also faced legal setbacks. Other states have yet to issue statewide mask mandates for schools, leading to these, flights, uh, to these fights taking place on the school district level. 
In a district outside Pittsburgh this week, a parent who opposed masking flashed a Nazi hand signal after the board voted to require masks. In Oregon and most of California, public school students will be required to mask. And on Wednesday, California required that its teachers either vaccinate or be tested for COVID regularly. This week, the two largest teachers unions in the country both signaled openness to such requirements. Vaccines are the single most important way of dealing with COVID, Randy Weingarten, president of the American Federation of Teachers, said Sunday on NBC's Meet the Press. It's not a new thing to have immunizations in schools. I think we need to be working with our employers, not opposing them, on vaccine mandates. Because Jewish day schools are private, they aren't subject to public school district policies or declarations from governors aimed at public institutions. And schools nationwide have said that their top priority is keeping kids healthy and in school. Schools in both left and right-leaning states will be imposing mask mandates on students, doing activities outside, and either requiring or urging teachers and eligible children to vaccinate. I've spoken to a lot of parents and no one said that, oh, it's so terrible that we have to mask, said Rabbi Mitchell Malkus, head of school at the pluralistic Charles E. Smith Jewish Day School in Maryland. I think everyone understands the situation that we're in and they're supportive as long as we can keep school open and the kids will be safe. Along with mandating masks, Charles E. Smith will be requiring that teachers and students older than 12 get vaccinated barring a medical exemption. SAR Academy, which is modern orthodox, will also be mandating vaccines for teachers and students and will make a final decision about masking soon. Schools in Florida and Texas are taking a slightly different approach. The Torah Day School of Dallas, an orthodox institution, is encouraging but not requiring students or teachers to vaccinate, though its head of school, Rabbi Avi Pekir, said all but two teachers are vaccinated. Unlike many other schools, Jewish schools, Pekir said uh, his is, he is still deciding whether to require its students to wear masks when school begins in two weeks. Last year, it required students in grades four and above to wear masks. This year, he said, other local Orthodox schools and synagogues have not required masks. And given how much students interact with the broader community, he believes masking only at his one school will have a limited effect. As of right now, schools are not mandating masks, and as far as I know, it's not even being talked about, Peke said Wednesday, as the status of mask mandates in and around Dallas appeared fluid. It seems like a bit of a joke that our day school masks when everyone else in town is not. At the Sheck Hillel Community School in North Miami Beach, Florida, students from kindergarten through high school will eat lunch in an outdoor dining area, just as they did last year, and the school will stress hygiene and sanitation. Masks will continue to be mandated as the governor's stance does not apply to private schools. But the school will not be mandating that teachers or students vaccinate at this time. It's the best protection we have other than the vaccination, and I would think it's even more so than the vaccinations because masking is that physical barrier, said Craig Carpentieri, Sheck uh, Hillel's interim head of school. He said most parents support the mask requirement, adding, I don't think any school is ever going to make everybody happy, but our primary focus is to keep everyone safe. While the school encourages vaccination, Carpentieri said that given differences of opinion within the school community about vaccines 
add recent changes in public health recommendations, the school administration is stopping short of a mandate. I think where the challenge has come for the entire U.S. is that we're doing great with vaccination rates and everybody said you can remove your mask and then the Delta variant came, so there's this yo-yo effect, he said. We've had some questions from parents, but not many. It is private medical information, a person's vaccination status, so it's not as simple a question as where are you going for dinner tonight. And next from JTA, the reform movement is investigating itself over history of rabbinic sexual misconduct by Asaf Shalev. After a series of high-profile revelations about sexual misconduct within its ranks, the world's largest Jewish denomination has initiated three separate independent investigations into how it deals with allegations of abuse. In an unprecedented move, the Reform Movement Seminary, Rabbinical Association, and Synagogue Network have each hired different expert law firms to investigate allegations of cases of harassment and abuse with a focus on policies and practices that have failed to ensure accountability. Rabbis, cantors, synagogue congregants, rabbinical students, and anyone else with relevant information are being encouraged to come forward and speak to specially trained attorneys who promise confidentiality and sensitivity. Something historic is happening, Rabbi Mary Zamor, who has been pressing the movement to make changes, told the Jewish Telegraphic Agency. I never thought I would see this day. The investigations have the potential to bring long-buried misconduct to light and to change the movement's policies about how it handles complaints about its rabbis and employees. Some are seeing an erosion of a culture of silence around sexual misconduct that advocates and community leaders say has pervaded the denomination and sometimes prevented allegations involving rabbis from coming to light. As executive director of the Women's Rabbinic Network, a group that bills itself as the conscience of the reform movement, Zamor has long pushed for the Me Too reckoning that she says is now underway. She said many of the roughly 600 rabbis in her network have observed for decades how survivors who complained through official channels were often ignored or dismissed. She believes they would be treated differently if they came forward now to participate in the investigations. All three institutions have really committed to independent investigations done by high-quality, trauma-informed law firms, said Zamor, who has been acting as an informal advisor to reform leaders in their efforts. They have all indicated they will be engaging in the process of teshuva, or repentance, and enacting changes. Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion hired the law firm Morgan Lewis to hear complaints involving harassment or discrimination by faculty and staff and investigate how seminary leaders responded to instances of inappropriate behavior. The deadline to share information is August 16th. The Central Conference of American Rabbis hired the firm of Alcala to look into its past and current ethical processes. Those who wish to speak about past instances should email the law firm at ccar at alcalaw.com by August 27th. The Union for Reform Judaism has hired the firm of Debevoise and Plimpton for its investigation. The current wave of soul-searching began in late April and early May after reports surfaced about sexual abuse by Rabbi Sheldon Zimmerman, 
who was president of the Reform Rabbinical School between 1996 and 2000 before resigning abruptly. The behavior dated back to his time as a pulpit rabbi in the 1970s and 80s. The violations that led to Zimmerman's resignation were not fully disclosed at the time, and many observers were left with the impression that he was guilty of nothing more than having consensual affairs. In fact, a reform movement internal investigation had found a pattern of sexually predatory behavior by Zimmerman, including that he fondled and kissed a teenager. With those findings obscured from public view, he went on to work as vice president of the Birthright Israel program and rabbi of the Jewish Center of the Hamptons. The investigation's findings were not revealed until this year when New York City's Central Synagogue, where Zimmerman had been rabbi from 1972 to 1985, investigated its own history. The revelation triggered outrage and generated a new call to action by, uh, by activists in the reform movement. Internal mechanisms have failed to bring justice and healing to so many victims and accountability to the reformed Jewish community writ large, Zamora's rabbinic Women's Rabbinic Network said in a statement April 28th. Within days, the movement's main organizations announced that they were hiring outside law firms. The Movement Seminary, Hebrew Union College, Jewish Institute of Religion hired the law firm Morgan Lewis. The Central Conference of American Rabbis is working with Alkalaw and the Congregational Network, the Union for Reform Judaism, has de Beauvoise and Plimpton for its investigation. In addition, two other major reform congregations, Temple Emmanuel in Dallas, where Zimmerman served as senior rabbi from 1985 to 1996, and Stephen Wise Temple in Los Angeles have since launched their own internal investigations. Each institution has acted on its own accord, but all three movement groups were responding to the same news, according to Rabbi Rick Jacobs, the president of the Union for Reform Judaism, which represents some 850 synagogues in the United States and more than 2 million congregants. The decision made by the URJ's leadership to retain outside counsel to conduct an impartial investigation was made independently, although it is a response to the same public reports of sexual misconduct within the reform movement that have led the HUC-JAR and CCAR leadership to have investigations conducted. Jacobs wrote in a response to questions from the Jewish Telegraphic Agency. Rabbi Hara Person, executive director of CCAR, also cited the press reports but added that her organization had begun discussing the issue last fall when it decided to revise its ethics process. She said that past updates had not produced a code that reflects, uh, a, that reflects current ethical standards and practices. It was a system that was created for a different time, a quieter time, before Me Too, with different mores in a pre-social media world, Persons said in an interview. Historically, there's been a lot of shame and reluctance of people not wanting to come forward, and that's really changed in recent years. Meanwhile, at Hebrew Union College, officials declined to answer questions, saying that it would be inappropriate to comment on details while the investigation is ongoing. Earlier this year, HUC alumni shared accounts of inequitable and dismaying experiences at HUC and in the field over the past decades, the seminary said in a statement. We are anguished and upset by what we have heard and take these accounts very seriously. It's far from the first time that reform, the reform movement has made promises, formed committees, and launched overhauls of ethics codes. 
In the 1980s, CCAR convened a task force of senior leaders that met for two years and decided to promote discussion about sexual misconduct at conferences and in the group's publications. But by the mid-1990s, the work of the task force looked like a farce. Its members had privately referred to themselves as the Well-Oiled Zipper Committee, according to a 1996 report by JTA. Complaints took years to be investigated and often resulted in only symbolic or ineffectual punishments. Those who complained felt they were ostracized while offenders remained welcome as their violations were often kept confidential. They were invited to undergo a process of repentance, an idea with deep roots in Jewish tradition. There is a lot of leaning forward giving the offending clergy the opportunity to repent and sometimes premature placement back in the congregational or other settings. Rabbi Jolie Spitzer said at the time, speaking as a leading advocate and expert on clergy sexual abuse within the reform movement. By 2000, a series of high-profile cases across the reform movement and other denominations brought the issue back to the fore. Allegations of sexual harassment against Rabbi Shlomo Karl Bach, the late Orthodox musician and spiritual leader, had come to light. A reform rabbi was convicted of hiring assassins to kill his wife in an effort to obscure an affair, and a rabbi working at the Orthodox Union was accused of molesting youth. Susan Weidman Schneider, then editor of Lilith, a feminist Jewish magazine, said there was a palpable change in the wake of these revelations. The wall of silence around clergy misconduct is being taken down, she said in a 2000 interview with JTA. But in the decades that followed, it turned out that the wall had not been completely demolished and was in some cases propped back up by the mishandling of allegations and weak processes for ethical correction. For example, in 2015, the forward revealed that CCAR had botched an effort to hold a rabbi accountable for alleged sexual misconduct toward numerous women, including a 17-year-old congregant. The rabbinic organization had expelled Rabbi Eric Soroka for refusing to comply with an ethics investigation, but didn't publicize exactly why he'd been investigated in the first place. So Soroka moved his family to another state where he was hired to teach Jewish high schoolers in a community that had no understanding of his past. That community was outraged to learn Siroka had been accused, among other similar allegations, of forcibly kissing a congregant who was 17 multiple times. Shortly afterward, the CCAR began listing on its website the names of rabbis who were expelled, suspended, or censured, and what ethics codes they had violated, according to person who took over the organization in 2018. That's a huge change, and I think it adds a tremendous amount of integrity to the process, Person said. But that change has not led to the transparency that many advocates seek. In a case that made headlines only a few years later, a woman accused her rabbi at Judea Reform Congregation in Durham, North Carolina, of sexual misconduct in a complaint to CCAR. The organization, organization censured Rabbi Larry Bach, but the congregation did not find out the, about the allegation or investigation until the woman notified them of what happened. In an interview with JTA, Sarah Hoffman, the woman in that case, said she recently spoke to the lawyers hired by CCAR for two hours about Bach and her experience of seeking accountability. 
rabbinics, uh, rabbinic ethics committees across denominations, not just Reform, but also conservative, reconstructionist, and orthodox, at times have seemed ill-equipped to police their own members. Indeed, the Reform movement is not alone in its array of scandals or its history of institutional failures, said Alana Wien, the executive director of the SRE Network, the Jewish advocacy group focused on equity and workplace safety issues. Issues of sexual harassment and discrimination are not unique to the Jewish community, nor to the reform movement, Wien said. Whenever you don't have healthy culture and policies and training reporting mechanisms, inappropriate behavior is able to continue. Zamor and other advocates have hoped that this round of reckoning will be meaningful. They point out that all three investigations are examining not just causes of wrongdoing, but are also studying how improper behavior has been handled by those in power. What's helping inspire confidence for them is that the reform movement has for the first time outsourced the investigatory work to uh, expert law firms with reputations for integrity. Have uh, here you have three organizations that have affirmatively reached out for new information and they are investigating the resources. It's not cheap to find out the truth of what happened over decades, said Heifeld Bloom, a lawyer who served on the Federal Equal Employment Opportunity Commission under Presidents Barack Obama and Donald Trump and was responsible for enforcing laws against workplace discrimination. After her second term on the commission ended, Feldblum went on to do private investigations into misconduct as part of her work for Morgan Lewis, the law firm hired by HUC. She has since left that role and now provides pro bono advice to the Women's Rabbinic Network. She outlined how these types of investigation tend to play out and why they are likely trustworthy. After the client, in this case, Agencies of the Reform Movement defines the scope of the work the lawyers have the autonomy to act. They try to gather as much relevant information as possible and are able to promise confidentiality for nearly all cases. The lawyers are trained to interview people who are relating traumatic events. An investigator can be kind and empathetic while still being neutral and seeking out the truth, Feldblum said. An image begins to emerge. The type and severity of allegations become clear. Then there's the matter of what, if anything, happened in response to complaints. According to Feldblum, with the caliber of law firms involved, the result of this process is more likely to be the truth than a fiction designed to satisfy the client. Law firms have reputations to uphold, Feldblum said. Sometimes the lawyers are asked to make recommendations, then it's up to the clients to decide what findings to make public and what to change. If the effort lives up to the expectations of advocates like Zamor and Wien, it could have implications across the Jewish world and beyond. There is an opportunity for the reform movement to model what it looks like to reckon with sexual harassment and discrimination, Wien said. Jacobs, the head of URJ, said it's still early in the investigation, but promised there would be a public component to its process and that the URJ would heed the advice of the lawyers it had hired. Key findings of the investigation will be shared with the community and the URJ will act on the recommendations from the Debevoise investigative team, he said in an email. Some activists remain skeptical that the latest investigations will get to the root problems. 
Investigations like these are a drop in the bucket and don't address the broader problem in the organized Jewish community in which there are no widely recognized standards on how institutions should treat people against whom there are credible allegations of misconduct, said Rafael Medoff of the Committee on Ethics and Jewish Leadership. Medoff, a Holocaust historian, is one of four Jewish academics steering the committee, a loose group that promotes the values of accountability, transparency, democracy, and fairness in American Jewish organizations and institutions. Medoff says the historic moment ushered by the Me Too movement demands the Jewish community do more to contend with sexual harassment and abuse. There have been serious cases of sexual harassment and abuse across the political and denominational spectrum, he said. It's one of the great tragedies of the American Jewish community. And next, some news briefs from JTA. Anti-Semitic porn videos are trending on adult content websites which ignore calls to remove them, an Israeli-based watchdog group said. The nonprofit group Fighting Online Anti-Semitism, or FOA, has identified dozens of videos on major adult content sites. Some feature actors dressed as Nazi officers acting out rape scenes of actresses portraying Jewish women. Attempts to flag the videos and have them removed have gone unanswered, FOA told the news site ice.co.il last week. Videos featuring underage subjects or revenge porn are pulled off quickly, Tomer Al-Dubi, the founder of FOA, told ICE, but when it comes to anti-Semitism about Jews, he said, the porn giants seem to not want to address it. In some of the videos in question, the hateful content is in the title alone. Advertising videos whose actual content does not reference ethnicity as depicting a Palestinian raping a Jew, as one video title states. The number of videos involving Jews on porn sites has pro proliferated in recent years, according to the article. Ukraine will allow vaccinated pilgrims to arrive in Uman ahead of the annual Rosh Hashanah celebration there, authorities said. The announcement, which comes amid a major increase in infections in Israel, the home of most of the pilgrims follows fears that Ukraine would ban the pilgrimage for a second year due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Currently, the epidemiological situation in Ukraine, high levels of vaccination coverage in the world, and timely preparation for this celebration allows to receive pilgrims, Deputy Health Minister Dr. Igor Kuzin said in a statement earlier this week. Before the pandemic, about 30,000 participated in the pilgrimage each year to the gravesite of Rabbi Nachman, an 18th century Jewish luminary whose teachings are followed especially by the Breslov Hasidic community. Last year, both Israeli and Ukraine, uh, Israel and Ukraine put in place measures that prevented the pilgrimage for most participants, yet some Breslovers attempted to circumvent the bans and measures, convening in the hundreds on the border with Belarus. Under the current measures in Israel, its citizens may travel to Ukraine but must self-isolate for two weeks upon returning. Self-isolation in Ukraine is not required for travelers who undergo a COVID test that comes out negative. Ukrainian health authorities have launched a concentrated vaccine uh, vaccination effort in Uman, focusing on service providers and health professionals in preparation for the pilgrimage, which will culminate on Rosh Hashanah, September 6th through the 8th.
Ukrainian police are patrolling Uman to ensure pilgrims adhere to social distancing measures. The University of South Carolina has announced the opening of a permanent exhibition on Anne Frank, complete with the reproduction of the desk where she wrote her diaries and in partnership with the museum in Amsterdam. The Anne Frank Center is scheduled to launch in September on the Columbia campus with an exhibition and learning program featuring photos, videos, artifacts, according to an item Tuesday on the CBS affiliate there. One room will reflect the famed diarist's experiences living in hiding from the Nazis for two years in a secret annex in Amsterdam. The Nazis caught Anne along with her parents and sister Margot in 1945 and deported them to concentration camps. Only her father, Otto, survived. He edited diaries and other writings by Anne and published them as the diary of a young girl, and it became an international bestseller. The house where the family hid is a museum that before the COVID-19 pandemic had received more than a million visitors annually. It is an official partner with the University of South Carolina, providing the university with educational material developed at the museum and some funding. Amsterdam's Anne Frank House Museum has partnerships with three other entities operating Anne Frank centers in London, Buenos Aires, and Berlin. Columbia's Anne Frank Center, where admissions will be free, also will reference racism in America and the South, including the story of Emmett Till, a black teenager who was lynched in Mississippi in 1955. Separately, a statue of Anne Frank was unveiled in Edmonton, Canada, the Dutch-Canadian club, a, a group focused on Dutch immigrants to that country, and their descendants commissioned a statue that was unveiled Sunday night, last Sunday night, in Lighthorse Park in commemoration of Canada's role in liberating the Netherlands, the Netherlands from the Nazis, the Edmonton Journal reported. A Belgian town is removing from a local square most of its references to a group of Latvian soldiers who were part of Nazi Germany's SS forces following allegations that the square honored them. Griviba Square in Zettelgem, a small town of 70 miles west of Antwerp, contained a statue of and a plaque about the Latvian beehive, hundreds of Latvian prisoners of war who were interred briefly at a POW camp in the village following World War II. They were part of the 15th and 19th Waffen Grenadier Divisions, which were under the administration of the Nazis. City council members in Zettelgem supported commemorating the soldiers held at the POW camp, giving the project the green light in 2018. It created controversy, uh, controversy largely thanks to coverage by Lev Galinkin, a Jewish journalist and author who wrote about the subject in the foreword. The square will get a new name and its plaque will be removed, but as of now the statue will remain. Anik Vermulin, the mayor of Zettelgem, said any offense caused was unintentional. Many Latvians admire the Beehive for their efforts in fighting Russia. Latvia's capital, Riga, has its own Briviba Square, and veterans of the local former SS units hold annual marches throughout the city. Protests against the march also occur annually by locals who view it as a glorification of war criminals. Guess who came to Shabbat dinner? The drama of Real Housewives of New York City. 
Many people have curbed or curtailed their big Shabbat dinners during the COVID-19 pandemic, but not the cast of The Real Housewives of New York City. On the episode that aired Tuesday, the cast of the Bravo reality TV series about socialites in the city is shown attending a drama-filled event described as Black Shabbat by its host. Ebony Williams, the show's first black cast member, hosted the dinner at the home of Archie Gottesman, a founder of Jew Belong, a nonprofit that set out to rebrand Judaism and recently took out billboards in several cities in an effort to combat anti-Semitism. Williams, who has described the 2016 it trip to Israel as transformative, became close friends with Gottesman after a different Shabbat dinner some years ago. The attendees noshed on challah and expressed appreciation after Leah McSweeney, a cast member who is in the process of converting to Judaism, recited a blessing in Hebrew via FaceTime. Having been exposed to COVID-19, she joined remotely until audio issues caused the women at the table to hang up on her. Gottesman led the group in what she referred to as a Shabbat shot of liquor. And during the meal, Williams initiated a conversation about black and Jewish relations in the United States. But fans of the show have focused mostly on the behavior of one cast member, Ramona Singer, who tries to steer the conversation to her own Italian identity. She also mistakenly calls the dinner a black Seder, leading one New York magazine commenter to write, how can these women have lived so long in New York City and know so little? And in what feels like a made-for-reality-TV moment, criticizes Gottesman's mismatched napkins. If you had asked me before the show what would have been the thing everyone was talking about, it would not have been napkins, Gottesman told the Jewish Telegraphic Agency. Made from fabric she purchased in Guatemala, my napkins are the best, but maybe they are not for everyone, she added. Gottesman said she had jumped at the chance to host the dinner, which took place last December to her home in Summit, New Jersey, because of her belief, baked into Jew Belong's programming, that Shabbat meals are ideal venues for meaningful conversations. She said the discussion at her table had been more in-depth than was depicted in Tuesday's episode and noted that the August 17th episode is also slated to include Shabbat content. Gottesman also said she was grateful to Williams and McSweeney for re representing Jewish life in popular media, especially after they told her that they received anti-Semitic messages after the show aired. There are currently no Jews on the local cast, although there have been in the past. What's interesting and fabulous about Ebony is that when she pitched Shabbat to the show's producers, she said they had never been pitched Shabbat before, Gottesman said. There have been Jewish housewives and Jewish producers on the show, and I think it's really beautiful that it's a non-Jewish black woman who said this should be on TV. It was great. Los Angeles's Greenblatt's Deli and Fine Wine Shop shuttered abruptly on Wednesday, ending nearly a century-long run for a fixture of Jewish food on Sunset Boulevard. Opened in 1926 and run by a single family since the 1940s, Greenblatt's described itself as a wine merchant that fronts as a deli. Eater reported that the restaurant was struggling amid the pandemic-induced labor shortage and that the owner wanted to close now rather than risk closure during the Jewish holidays next month. Well, that's all the time we have for the Jewish News Hour this week. This is Marshall Weiss, editor and publisher of the Dayton Jewish Observer, and I thank you very much for listening.